and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am Jack Rossett and Lundley, one of the co-hosts. And I'm the other one, Connor McNamara Stratton. We are here today to talk about a great poem called An American Sunrise by Joy Arjo. Um, probably the most pertinent thing to know about this poem uh, is that it is what's known apparently as a golden shovel poem where the last word of each line in order uh, are words from a line or some lines of a Gwendolyn Brooks poem. So, it's, and specifically like one poem, right? Right. Specifically her very famous poem often called we real cool, which is actually titled the pool players seven at the golden shovel. And each line of this poem does indeed spell out a line from that poem. Uh, the poem, as I said, was written by Joy Harjo. She has won like way too many awards to actually list them here. So I encourage you to look her up on Wikipedia and read about the like no joke 50 or so awards that she's won over the course of her storied writing career. Dozens of awards. Cause in addition to being a very accomplished poet and writer, she's also a visual artist and she's won a ton of awards for that too. So like, basically every award. She was born in Oklahoma. She's from the Muscogee Creek Nation. And she was one of the writers who was part of the Native American Renaissance. She came in sort of the, like later on, she's sort of what's known as the second wave of the Native American Renaissance, which is kicked off uh, primarily by the book House Made of Dawn by M. Scott Mamaday, which was published in 68. Uh, 1968. And there's a little bit of pushback, I know, against the nomenclature of the Native American Renaissance, because some people feel like it downplays uh, the contributions to culture and writing that were being made all along by Native Americans. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that, but it is generally how her career is described. Uh, so with, with slight qualms, I will, I will mention her in that context. She's great. <laughs> Um, what book is this from? Oh, it's from, oh, it's well, from poetry. It's from Poetry Magazine. Yeah, in 2017, yeah. right? Yes, this uh, poem was originally published on February 1st, 2017 in Poetry Magazine. Uh, and it is loosely tied to this musical project that she's been working on about the involvement of uh, Native American people in jazz music specifically. Uh, and I think that comes out in the poem itself. Yeah. But this is An American Sunrise by Joy Harjo. We were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight. Easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. We made plans to be professional, and did. And some of us could sing, so we drummed a firelit pathway up to those starry stars. Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil, we sang. We were the heathens, but needed to be saved from them. Thin chance. We knew we were all related in this story. A little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz. I argued with a Pueblo as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June, 40 years later, and we still want justice. 
We are still America. We know the rumors of our demise. We spit them out. They die soon. Cool. Awesome. There's a lot going on in that poem, but I have to say, what a way to start a poem. That first sentence, we were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. Whew. Yeah, I know. It's so good. Um, yeah, it's so right to end, to put the breath first and then ourselves second. Because um, it, yeah, just, I love imagining the exhaustion and just like finding yourself, which presumably is where you are, but it's not. Yeah, and it retains the energy. Because if you said we ran out to meet ourselves and ran out of breath, it makes it sound like you got tired doing it. But here, it's like this joyous exertion that's too great to contain mm -hmm. and is necessary. It's really quite something. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, and just so you mentioned that it's uh, from that Brooks poem, and I just wanted to read that poem real quick because it because I, I just think that it's echoes with the original very interesting um so it goes we real cool the seven the pool players seven at the golden shovel we real cool we left school we lurk late we strike straight we sing sin we thin gin we jazz june we die soon and so this poem starts at we strike straight. And then the end of each of Harjo's lines is a word in the Brooks poem. Which is really neat. Um, and one thing I know that Gwendolyn Brooks said about that poem, specifically with reference to the We Jazz June line, which is the least straightforward of them all, is that she wanted to take the month that she thought was the most basically like heteronormative month, like everybody gets married in June, and she wanted to talk about these kids who skip school and shoot pool and act cool, uh, messing that up. And so they jazz June. So she was almost using jazz as a verb to say what they do to this straightforward month. And I think it's really interesting and cool that that is included in here as one of the lines that she uses um, in her endings because she's talking almost about how Native American voices jazz jazz. The way that jazz as a tradition is talked about often erases the Native American voices that were crucial to helping create it and continue it. And part of what she wants to do is reinsert those voices and re-empower them. What Harjo wrote about this poem and sort of in general uh, and about the musical that she was writing, I thought might be helpful to read. So she was saying at the same time, I was writing a musical that includes uh, Muscogean indigenous peoples in the origin story of blues and jazz. We have been disappeared from the stories, but there would be no blues or jazz without our contributions. Our tribal music is also pentatonic, polyrhythmic, features call and response, and we know how to swing. Um, anyway, I just thought that was, you know, I like that part. It's interesting. Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting to think about the idea of a golden shovel form. Uh, is so kind of wild. A, it's, you know, an iconic Brooks poem, so it's in conversation with her, but it's also just such, it's such a small, iconic uh, American poem that is taught everywhere, 
like almost to a fault, like almost like maybe teach another Gwendolyn Brooks poem because like she didn't just write like 20 words. Um, but is is such a good example of so many things that uh, we want to teach about poetry, which is like sound being so important. We thin gin, we jazz June. Also this idea of enjambments are so prominent in that poem. And, and then also gets at this sort of, which probably someone could draw back to Whitman or something, which is the capacious uh, first person plural or first person singular. And in, in Whitman's case, it would be, you know, the I that stands in for everything. But this we is a very large we in Brooks's poem. Um, and sort of speaks to, um, you know, a, a particular and particularly black experience in America um, and, and is very like, you know, assertive and confident and also complex about it. Um, the way that it ends, we die soon. And so, and then to take Harjo, which in this poem is, you know, a very particular Native American, like speaking to that experience, um, echoing the Brooks and using that similar we because you have to keep using it. And so the we's keep coming at the ends of the lines and there's that really, um, you know, re repetitious way in the way that she uses that, but also is changing it. And one way that she changes it that's interesting is the, the last line um, is, uh, you know, we are still America. We know the rumors of our demise. We spit them out. They die soon. Um, so whereas in the Brooks poem, the sort of speakers who are these young kids are dying soon in the Harjo poem, it's the rumors about their demise that are dying. And they're, then the, the we is sort of spitting them out and killing them. Um, which I sort of like how she, she does that while still retaining the essential, uh, texture of the Brooks. Definitely. Definitely. And she also writes against the Brooks in, this is also set in a bar, but it has a very different feeling than the one that is in the Brooks poem. Uh, mainly because one by writing about native American stories in the setting of a bar, she's dipping into a lot of stereotypes about native Americans uh, and a lot of true history about the, what has happened to native American populations, particularly on reservations, alcohol and alcoholism and substance abuse, because it's astronomical on uh, reservations and the sort of uh, cultural construction of like the, drunk Indian is huge uh, and shows up not just in stereotype, but also is investigated by authors like Sherman Alexie, who writes about his own experience with substance abuse as a kid, uh, like seeing it all around him, talking about his, his father drinking uh, a great deal and like drunken parties at his house. Um, so it's, it's a whole different texture when it's in this context. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Um, that also makes me think of, I was listening actually to another poetry podcast, uh, which just started this fall, it's called Verses, 
Uh, it's with the Poetry Foundation, but it's with um, Denez Smith and Franny Choi. And they had on uh, Natalie Diaz, who's this great uh, poet, and she was reading this poem. And one of the statistics, you know, sort of the poem was based around statistics, I'll have to find it, but basically uh, American Indians like make up less than 1% of the American population currently. It's like 0.8%, but are the most killed by police per capita. Uh, of any race. Um, and so it's like one, 1.8 or 9% of all police shootings are uh, of American Indians. Anyway, that just makes me think of both, you know, the way that I, I could imagine the, the constructions and the discourse around sort of that alcoholism, but also like a kind of criminality uh, and threat that then sort of um, plays out materially in the way that police treat um, American Indians, which is not dissimilar to what we talked about with the um, Soma Sharif poem, where, you know, the rhetoric and the stereotypes surrounding that have, you know, very material consequences, which anyone who is that identity knows intimately well, but for some reason, it's always a surprise for white people <laughs> right. including myself at one point but hopefully i've read a little bit and i'm slightly smarter <laughs> yeah anyway. no, that's a great point and the way that the bar setting feels in this is very almost claustrophobic and restrictive and there are all these hints of the desire to escape and so the bar comes to represent this kind of entrapment that's brought up in other ways in other places uh, but it sets it up right at the beginning where it says it was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight. If you're not drinking, if you're not taking this, it's almost like uh, Soma in Brave New World or something. It's like if you're not taking the opiate that they want you to take, it's hard to forget that this is a place you want to leave. Um, and in fact, the next line tells you that and says, easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. If you're drinking, you'll realize that you need to forget that this is a place you need to get out of. This is the box that society wants to keep you in. Staying in this setting uh, is the trap that's been laid for you. And then that trap becomes greater than just a physical place when it says uh, sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil we sang. Uh, so this is, to me, sort of two meanings. It's that one there's a box that Christians are trying to put you in for your native religion, perhaps, uh, or for the religion that you have, like they're going to try and turn you into uh, the next line says we were the heathens, but needed to be saved from them. Like it wanted to turn us into something bad. Uh, but also when it says, as was the devil comma, we sang, it's both singing about the devil and also singing because of where the poem then goes, the devil's music as jazz and, and blues were called. So it's, you're both singing the devil and you're singing about the devil, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I like that a lot. That makes me think of, yeah, I like the idea of thinking about entrapment and trapped. So that does seem to come up a lot. Like this, the, I mean, the first two lines, which we talked about a little bit, we were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves there's that kind of you're tr like 
what you're trying to meet is yourself and but you're not quite there yet there's this sense of almost getting to where you want to go which is then followed up by we were surfacing the edge of our ancestors fights and ready to strike so not yet striking potentially but then also surfacing the edge is like a double almost right so you're not like in the center of the ancestors fight you're not at the edge of the ancestors fight you're getting to the surface of the edge almost it's not exactly the same as being trapped but it's it's like in getting to the place where you want to go you're still not there you're always almost getting there kind of thing um which i really like i like that idea because it puts me in mind of uh life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it's the pursuit of happiness um which of course is adapted from the pursuit of property so it's like not necessarily all that great but the the idea that it's like the journey is important and the journey in fact is where the primacy of importance is put and that it goes back to this founding document this aspirational document but the creation of that document is also the creation of the nation that then makes this pursuit and this struggle necessary at all yeah yeah no that's that is really right um yeah and so and it it is um there's that pursuit still that that carries through you know um we made plans to be professional and did um and some of us could sing so we drummed a firelit pathway up to those starry stars you know that emphasis on the plans and then also the pathway being being kind of the thing that they're creating drumming up a pathway um and then at the same time at the end um you know that line we are still america is sort of intention with that because it's like this constant identity you know that the speaker needs to assert that as much as we're aspiring and maybe they're not in tension with each other like ultimately but there is this kind of aspiration and almost and being trapped but at then at the same time it's like we are still america and you can't forget us and we will always be this no matter what you do or what you rumor about us, basically, um, which is powerful. That's really interesting. I have a couple thoughts about those two sections that you point out. Um, the first where you were talking about uh, some of us could sing, or we made plans to be professional and did. Um, partially in the barroom setting, I'm thinking of like people who make plans, uh, like in the Iceman Cometh or something, where everybody's always talking about, oh, he's gonna arrive, he's gonna come, it's gonna be great, you know, like always like, oh, tomorrow is gonna be the day, like it's gonna come kind of thing. Like we made plans and they never happened, but here it says we made plans to be professional and did, didn't just make plans, we did it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to follow that up with, some of us could sing, so we drummed a firelit pathway up to those starry stars. I take that to be really calling back to native people who were able to escape whatever their initial conditions were and like, make a career for themselves, particularly because of the context of this poem, like in music, drummed a firelit pathway to those starry stars. We made it to the top of the pops. And then the, the line, we are still America, I found so powerful because it harkens back to, at least I think about why is it necessary to make this statement that should be obvious. Of course, you are America. Um, 
for for native peoples. Um, but reservations have their own very complex relationship legally to the nation of the United States uh, and always have had a, a different relationship than most principalities would or like areas that they are their own nations essentially within the United States. Um, but also it to me brings to mind the civil rights era posters that said, I am a man and the more contemporary iteration of that, which is Black Lives Matter. You have to make these really basic statements about humanity and belonging when you are constantly erased and removed or made less than by the dominant culture. And so the necessity of having to say, we are still America is incredibly sad and powerful. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree a lot. One other little thing that, that I think sort of has is a, is a feature in it, which is about the, dis, it's like about the discourse, uh, which I think is important in the way, and I'm sort of tipped off by the end where it says, we know the rumors of our demise, we spit them out, they die soon. And that, that's kind of like, we know what people are saying and, you know, that's not in our mouths anymore. Like we've gotten rid of them. So that I'm just thinking about what, what people are saying or what people are doing, all that stuff. And, and I think there's an interesting way that the lines are working to, um, and I don't know how much to read into this, but that are both deferring and then emphasizing uh, the saying of it. Um, so for example, Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil, we sang. We sang is, it's an odd syntactical, partly it's necessitated by the form because she had to have sin at the end of the line. But the we sang coming at the end puts sin as like this huge statement. And then we're like, we don't know who's saying for a while, uh, sin was invented by the Christians, etc. Um, similarly, uh, we had something, we, and then there's a line break, had, had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz. And then there's a line break. And then it says, I argued with a Pueblo as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June. So again, there's this like claim that's very powerful. You know, we had something to do with the origins of jazz and the way that the, the line breaks, um, has a moment where the statement can be a statement by the poem and not be qualified uh, by the fact that it's occurring like quote in scene or something like that. Um, but then at the same time, so it's deferred in that way, but then at the same time when it comes, I argued with a Pueblo as I filled the jukebox. Um, it does sort of like, I, I don't know exactly what the effect is, but it, it well, it, A, it re returns to the jukebox, to the bar, um, and that kind of thing. So it, it, it sort of like goes outward really confidently, and then it returns sort of, and maybe is still trapped or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But that kind of, uh, those moments seem, were very interesting to me, I guess. 
They are uh, interesting. Um, I have a question related to that in a second, <clears throat> but I, I like that you drew out the, I argued with the Pueblo as I filled the jukebox, because that to me is saying that like the erasure is so deep that even this other native person doesn't know about the origins of blues and jazz that involve native voices. And this conversation is not a conversation, it's an argument. She's making, she has to prove her point to this person. Uh, and I almost take the, as I filled the jukebox with dimes, is like, no, I'll show you, like, here's a song by a native person. Here's a song that has a native person. Here's another one. Like, I, I'm going to fill this jukebox and every song you hear, dozens of them is going to feature these voices. And you don't even know, like, how is this possible? It's like tearing her hair out almost. Yeah, no, that I think that's exactly right. That is a great reading of that. Um, that's right. My question is, because you so rightly point out, like a lot of the syntax in this poem is a little weird, and it seems mostly to be a result of the of the form. Like, how, how does this form as a form work for you? Do you think it's like heightening the poem, or do you think this poem in another version, like maybe without the constraints of the Golden Shovel poem on it, would be uh, would fly a little higher, let's say? That is a very interesting question. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm sort of undecided. I guess like, on the one hand, I like the idea of a form coming out not of like a quote, form, but a poem. So it's not a sonnet in that it has um, its roots in like, meter and stanza and blah, blah, blah. But um, it's an actual poem that then sort of gives birth to other poems. Um, so I, I like I like that thing, and I do think that that works here insofar as, um, you know, in just like moments like we, 40 years later and we still want justice. Um, it's a different moment, but the Brooks poem, I mean, it's not 40 years, but it came out in 57, it was published. And there's, in the effort to harken back to the past in the poem, the fact that it comes from a poem, like literally has the seeds of it in 1957, sort of like embeds that in a way that, you know, a poem that's sort of not coming from uh, that form would do. At the same time, yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that the enjambments are a little conspicuous at times in a way that um, like, it's good that the we comes in at the end like once, but uh, I don't know, but uh, every time it doesn't seem to be doing a new thing. Um, and and it, it doesn't quite, because it's longer and there's actually real sentences rather than in the Brooks poem that's just like three line things, like I I get tugged into a real sentence and then I get a, a we and then I get a line break. And that is kind of jarring in a way that I don't know is helpful for the poem. Those are my initial thoughts. Because um, I do feel like, and then I also get the sense that, and maybe this is a good thing, that there's a lot that Arjo wants to say in this poem. And it's like, it's reined, it's reined in by the Brooks form, which of course you like want to see 
like that's a kind of dynamic thing to see is this sort of like almost bursting at the seams um and and that sort of can be the joy of constraints but at the same time maybe there would be more there if if she didn't have to kind of you know then well then we have to talk about the jazz thing because the jazz is cupping and i guess it's going to be june uh because it's got to be june <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm in a similar place where I love what the poem gains from being in conversation with the Brooks poem, but there are a couple of places where I, I feel like it takes a weird turn that it wouldn't have otherwise. And I don't know that that's necessarily good or bad. It just feels like the poem is being pulled away from something it wants to say by this form occasionally. Uh, however, there are also some really interesting and cool original phrases. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of thin chance. I love thin chance, and I don't think that would come up without the form. So uh, yeah. I'm a, a little ambivalent about it overall. I really like this poem, and it's very interesting and stimulating to me um, for a number of reasons. Specifically, I think the music thing really speaks to me, um, but I, I'm interested in always when I read a poem that's in a certain form, I'm always like sort of curious, what does the form add? What does it change? You know, oh, it's a sonnet. Why Why is this one a sonnet? You know, uh, and I, I find that always an interesting question to ask of a poem when I'm reading it. So I was glad to get your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I mean, I love, yeah, I love Thin Chance. Um, but the other thing that, that the, my like current hot take about form is that, uh, which I was trying to maybe tell my students is that like the form um, both does work and is something. And um, if the form is so present, I think that, uh, and so like overwhelming or at the surface, then whatever the form means dominates what the poem means in some kind of way and i think can often flatten uh the like other things that are going on in the poem um like oftentimes you know in sort of i think which i've probably done like elementary like less good not elementary but less good poems that i've seen being workshopped where there, there's like the, the poem is long, the lines are long, and then it like slows, it like skinnies slowly, and then there's like one word at the end, and then the poem is sort of like about something suffocating or like choices being narrowed or something. So the form is imitating the content. Um, but the form is so obvious that like, I don't, that's like all I get is like, oh, suffocation or like claustrophobia or like narrowing, where there's so many things happening in the poem uh, and rather, I think the a form most of the time, unless the form's ingenious, should lie underneath and just tug you in the directions that you want to go. Uh, and so, in this way, I do think that the form is is loud here. Um, and probably made especially so because I'm so familiar with the Brooks poem that I just keep reading that. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So it's possible that at some point, maybe later on, it'll be less overbearing. But in the current moment, for me, it's a loud form that I think the poem could be better served by, um, uh, you know, maybe not having it. And then it's also like, well, you know, I've spent all this time connecting the Brooks and the Harjo, but it's like, then I don't want to conflate a Native American experience with the Black experience in America, because that's different. I mean, on the one hand, she is bringing that in explicitly with, or at least connecting them with, we, we had something to do with the origins of jazz, and the origins of jazz are often talked about in terms of, um, like, African-American contributions. Uh, but it's not the same, and she's not saying it's the same. And so I, I wonder if that, if that form leads to a disservice of the reading of it, where it's like supposed to be about something that, because it's talking about the Brooks poem, I'm, I'm reading into this other dimension that it doesn't want. Where I come, where I come to have sort of some trouble is that there's like sort of three, like peoples or populations that are in the poem or like there's the um, Native American population, there's the African American population, and then there's something that is like the they or the dominant blah, 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 or the, you know, the white population. And so a lot of the poem is explicitly against the they or writing against that or the, you know, what I would assume to be the white population. But in that the form is like so intensely, as you say, repurposing <clears throat> the Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, I there's some ambiguity as to like how much resistance is in this direction and how much is in that direction, I guess. But that's nevertheless interesting. So, and it would be, I mean, it, I do feel like I should probably do some more research on how the conversation about the origins of jazz and blues came about because, yeah, I just wonder who, who was involved, who exerted their influence to, to make this the story and not another story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it's like white musicologists who traveled into the South to record people and the narrative that got created was about, music of, at least for blues particularly, you know, uh, it's music of like strictly the African-American tradition. And while that's true to a degree because of it growing out of uh, slave songs and spirituals and work songs, there's also the very real fact that a lot of people think that Charlie Patton, uh, because he was known to be lighter skinned, the father of Delta blues was uh, there's a lot of speculation that he might have been part Mexican or part Cherokee of, you know, mixed race heritage, whereas the music that he pioneered is mainly thought of as black or African-American music. Um, and there is this multiplicity of heritages at work. I want to make sure to mention, because there's actually, there's a documentary right now called Rumble, which is about the influence of uh, American Indian voices in rock and roll. And the title of the documentary comes from the song Rumble, which is an instrumental by uh, a Native American guy, Link Ray. Uh, that was like one of the first recorded uses of distortion. It like had a huge impact on basically everybody who picked up a guitar 
Uh, and it also shines a light on a lot of people who are not primarily thought of as either being Native American or of having Native ancestry, such as Jimi Hendrix, for whom being part uh, Native was very important to him. Uh, he had, I believe, a grandparent. Um, and Robbie Robertson as well, the, the lead guitarist of the band, uh, among many others. But the, the documentary sort of pulls out that thread, uh, which is a really important one and one that gets super overlooked. Um, I'm thinking of this extra because I'm actually reading a book right now called Just Around Midnight Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination, which is about how rock and roll became such a white genre uh, in general, not just erasing native voices, but like getting rid of African-American uh, presence in rock and roll basically during the 1960s, over the course of the 60s, which is a really fascinating and important subject and sort of calls back to a lot of what's going on in this in this poem. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Um, last thing is, if you like this poem, there is a anthology uh, that's going to be published, maybe it has been published, called The Golden Shovel Anthology, New Poems Honoring Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, so I, I think that there's sort of multiple uh, styles and or poems in this form uh, that you can check out there. Should we uh, read it again? Let's read it again. An American Sunrise by Joy Harjo. We were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight. Easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. We made plans to be professional and did. And some of us could sing. So we drummed a firelit pathway up to those starry stars. Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil, we sang. We were the heathens. We needed to be saved from them. Thin chance. We knew we were all related in this story. A little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz, I argued, with a pueblo, as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June. 40 years later, and we still want justice. We are still America. We know the rumors of our demise. We spit them out. They die soon. That does it for this episode of Close Talking. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking news or find old episodes, be sure to check out iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to Close Talking. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking, or on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn for me, at Hot Sauce Boxed for Connor, and at Close Talking for the show. If you have thoughts on this conversation, different readings of this poem, or any of the other poems we've discussed, or if you have suggestions for poems that you'd like us to talk about in the future, please send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com.